enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this is our third episode of Rerun. Today, we're talking about the 2018 Boston Marathon with Des Linden. She won this amazing race, and it was so much fun to talk to her about it. Our first two episodes of Rerun were about the 2016 Olympic Trials, first the men's edition and the women's edition. And this is episode number three of this. Now, this is all on the Rambling Runner podcast feed. I want to do more of these. These are so much fun. And shoot. Now that we don't have any live sports to talk about, it's kind of more fun than ever to dive into these. Before we do so, I do want to talk about my friends over at Prevenix. As runners, joint pain is something that we all deal with constantly, or hopefully not constantly, but certainly quite a bit of times. Uh, our joints are taking a pounding, and it can really derail your training if that's happening to you. We've all been there. But we've got a proven solution for you. I want to talk to you about Joint Health Plus, which is something that I love to use and have been using now for a while. This is the joint supplement for runners, and I can personally attest to its many benefits that I felt since taking the product over the last five months. I've noticed a huge reduction in joint pain, and my joints recover much quicker from workouts and between workouts than ever before. So why is this great for runners specifically beyond just the benefits that I mentioned? Well, the main ingredient is clinically proven to reduce joint pain and stiffness and improve joint flexibility in just 7 to 10 days. That's right, 7 to 10 days, which is basically unheard of. You'll notice the difference. I know I certainly did. Beyond that, it's also clinically proven, not just tested by athletes, but through a double-blind placebo study to protect joint cartilage from breaking down during exercise. I'm telling you, this is the joint supplement for runners, and I'm happy to use it and recommend it, and I can't recommend it enough. So go to Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use code RUNNER15 to save 15% on your first purchase. Also, best of all, it has a 100% money-back guarantee. If you don't feel all the benefits that I'm talking about, just send it back. Now, without further ado, here is Des Linden in Rerun, the 2018 Boston Marathon. Hello, Des, and welcome to Rerun, the 2018 Boston Marathon. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show and excited to finally get on. Oh, wow. Well, hey, as good of a big fan as you are of the show, I guarantee you I'm a bigger fan of yours. I'm really excited for this. Uh, we actually talked about doing this a couple months ago, and ever since we had that exchange, I've been really excited. And uh, back then, Lord knows, we did not know that the 2020 Boston Marathon was not going to happen. And it was funny, you know, we were kind of sent some messages back and forth last week, and I was like, hey, I can't find the 2018 Boston Marathon. It's been scrubbed from YouTube. I don't know where I'm going to find this thing. And you gave me a little little wink and a nod. You're like, I think you're going to have access to it in a couple of days, but you didn't hear it from me. That's right. And plenty of them, too. It's uh, like a marathon of marathons. So fun times on Monday, and I think they're still rolling. So, yeah, watch as many as you can. It's unbelievable the rollout they've had. And I was actually on a podcast recording yesterday or the day before with Allie Feller. It will come out in a couple of days. And I was likening it to March Madness. Yeah. Or it's like the first day of March Madness. It's like you're just like sat, you're just sitting in front of the TV and you're so excited. That's what like the Marathon Monday uh, this past Monday felt like for me. I, I agree. And honestly, I, d I never really watched these. So um, 
it was a little uncomfortable. Like I kind of had it on in the background and I'm in a lot of the Boston races in particular. So I'm like, well, I'll just peek in here and there. Um, I love watching the men's race because obviously you never see that. And then I have an understanding of what went on in my own race and how I visualized it. But sitting down and watching it was was different. Yeah. And you had mentioned to me that this was the first time that you had seen a replay of 2018. I think I've seen clips of it, but I've never sat down and just been like, okay, I'm going to watch the marathon. And full transparency, it was still a little bit too uncomfortable. So I did this Instagram live thing um, and I just kind of kept an eye on it. Yeah, that was a hit. I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely you're definitely stepping on Stephanie Bruce's territory with the Instagram live. But, you know, I'm sure she'll give you a pass. But it was it was definitely a hit. I got all these messages after the fact because I had to watch this replay uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern time on my phone because I didn't have access to the Olympic Channel through my cable package. So I missed all of it. I, like, after the fact, I had to like go back and watch like your your live thing. But it was funny because I checked Twitter after the fact because I wanted to be so dialed into this race while I was watching it. And it was hysterical how many people were like live tweeting a race that had happened two years ago. That's really funny. I did not see any of that. And uh, I'm definitely not stepping on Steph Bruce's toes. I'm kind of a one and done <laughs> on Instagram live. That can be her territory. I think um, announcers and podcasters and anybody in the business is like, my job is safe for sure. So uh, one and done there for me. Oh, that's hysterical. All right. So uh, one thing that they mentioned a lot in this race, and we're going to dive into it and take it chronologically, but a couple things before we get going, it's kind of laying the foundation. One thing that they mentioned a lot was post the 2017 race, basically your reaction to how that played out for you and how you felt about running and the extended break that you went on. It they, they described it in various ways throughout the telecast. Like at one point they were just like, oh yeah, she took six months off. And at other points, and I'd heard you talk about this before, so I kind of knew a little bit of the of the truth. They kind of said, oh, well, she, she didn't really take six months off. It was a little bit different than that. So what exactly was your initial reaction to the 2017 race? And what, you know, what happened after the fact leading into the fall? Yeah, so it was kind of... um a build up to that point and you come off the Olympics and there's a little bit of a, a slump after that. And that's just pretty natural anyhow. And so I plugged Boston in right away. I was like, I know that's going to happen. There's going to be those down uh, weeks and months afterwards, but Boston will get me excited. And that gets you out the door every day, uh, no matter how your Olympic experience goes. And so um, I was super revved up for 2017, got really fit, um, felt like, all right, I'm ready. This is my year. I don't think I've ever been this fit before. Um, I, I really have a shot at this thing. And, you know, I felt like that at the games too. So it was like kind of the second one in the row uh, where I felt that way. And then, you know, raced it and just got shellacked the last, I mean, they broke away at 17 miles and um, I knew I was running well, but those three women in front of me were just untouchable. It was like, you're just not good enough to win this race. And I think, you know, the last couple miles, it was having that realization um, and kind of, uh, you know, just being in touch with reality of my age and um, the missed opportunity in 2011 and uh, really walked away from that race just completely gassed because I put so much into it um, physically and emotionally and mentally in the whole thing. And, and they were all just kind of like us. Uh, not 
not going to pan out and you're actually just not good enough for this. So uh, let go of the dream of Boston um, was kind of how I walked away from it because I, I didn't think I could get any fitter than that. Right. And it's so interesting to hear you say that, because even at that point, if you look at the results you'd had in that race, you were as consistent as anybody over the last eight or nine years, um, you know, going from 2011 on. And yet, you know, you to have that realization for you, and obviously it was an incorrect realization that we know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know, we know <laughs> what happened in 2018. But, you know, it's so interesting to hear like the elites of the elite talk about how the difference between, you know, fourth and first or sixth and first and how it may seem like an outsider like myself that like that gap can't be that big. But to hear you talk about it, it felt like, you know, like a, like this huge moat between you and, and, and the, your final destination. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the turning point where for a long time, I mean, 2011 up to then, it was like, I'm so close. It's just about having the right day. It's right there. It's right in front of me. And that was motivating um, in 2017, it just took a total turn and it was like, this is actually really frustrating because I just can't close that gap. And there's, you know, uh, nothing there anymore to do. I can't find any extra or that little bit more to give. And and so instead of being motivating at that point, it became a frustration. Okay. So at that point, were you considering just finding – you know, a different race to really gear your year towards because, you know, and they mentioned this on the broadcast as well, they're like, all right, she hadn't won a, you know, she had never won a marathon, you know, referring to you. And I think part of that certainly is because, well, you just enter really, really good marathons, right? It's not as if you, you know, were, were stepping up and no offense, you know, to, to the Akron marathon or something, but it's not like you were like, all right, I'm gonna try Akron or Boston and see how I do. So did after 2017 Boston, was it just a matter of I need to step away and or was it a matter of I just need to have different priorities within the sport that I'm still going to stay connected to? I think it was trying to figure that out. And, um, you know, the natural reaction for me was like, let's just put the next big thing that gets me out the door and like, let me try again, even though I'm frustrated like, let me just keep trying and and enforcing this thing. Um, so, you know, I put Gold Coast on the half marathon on the schedule right away. And it was like, this will help me get faster. We'll do some turnover stuff. And then maybe we'll go to a flat, fast marathon in the fall. And maybe I can knock out a PR and so on and so forth. Um, and that was kind of the initial direction. In in that process, it was just like, it was torture going out for runs and workouts every day. It was like, I, I'm forcing this. I don't really care about this. I don't care about a time. Um, you know, it was just frustrating and it all kind of hit ahead after that Gold Coast where I still thought I was fit, but I went like ran 112, long way to go, uh, fly to Australia to run a 112 on a perfect day and just, you know, feel horrible about it. And that's when I was like, I can't, you can't force this. You have to, um, one, be passionate about it, have fun, and let it come to you if it's going to come to you. If not, then we'll reprioritize and, and figure out maybe it's a smaller race in the future. And at that point, was that the first time in your career that you had felt that way? Yeah. And I think like my high school coach, I had four different high school coaches over four years, which is insane. Um, but the guy that really taught me a lot and, you know, directed me a lot as a collegiate and as a pro, just gave me great advice. Um, you know, his, from day one, his advice was always, if you're not having fun, 
don't do this. There's other things to do. You, you can find other things to stay, other ways to stay fit and other ways to have fun and the whole thing. So if it's a job, like if this job becomes a job that you're dreading every day, do something else. And, you know, that was kind of what I started to feel like it was in, I really was like, I, I'm not having fun. I need to think about if I really want to do this or not. And the best way to think about that is take a break from it. All right. And that obviously, because that's the first time you've experienced that this was a new thing. So who did you lean on to kind of help you with that process, considering that you were making a dramatic shift and a new one at that? Yeah. I mean, it was mostly pushed onto Ryan and, uh, you know, the people that would traditionally help me the most, I was kind of like, I don't want you to help me at all. Like, don't, don't bother right now. And I feel like I personally felt like, you know, I was taking up their valuable time when I didn't necessarily feel like I deserved it then. Um, because it was like, you guys are passionate about running. You're, you know, getting me into the best races or you're coaching me to be my best and so on and so forth. They're just high level people that I work with. And I was not doing this at a high level at that point. So, um, I relied a lot on Ryan just because, you know, he wasn't a person who was training me to be good or expecting results. He's just a person who uh, loves me no matter what. So at what point during the late late summer or, you know, early fall or late fall or even early winter did the spark return for you and you start to, start to get excited about Boston again? Yeah, I think I took – I think it was probably a full month off. Um, and I just, you know, didn't run, kind of did other stuff. And then, I, I mean, I don't have another job. So I actually started getting bored. And then it was kind of like, well, I, I would like to go out for a run. And you do a couple of runs and you're like, well, a workout would be fun. Um, and that was the first, you know, kind of little spark. And it's like, okay, like that, that was actually fun. Um, but it was a total month off. And then it was a real, like, casual approach to like, when I feel like working out, I'll work out. If I don't, well, you know, pass on that. Um, and that was probably a, about a, a month of that. And then I got pretty excited again. Like you get in shape and, uh, that's the hard part. Once you get in shape, you're like, okay, this is, this is a good time. Now, how fit can I get? Okay. Now, like, what am I aiming this towards? Um, and I just did off distances and like did some cross country and things where I couldn't compare myself to where I was in the past. Like i haven't had a cross country season in forever. So, um, I don't know what my time at, uh, the BAA mayor's cup really means. I just went out and raced for, you know, five or six K and was tired afterwards. So that's, that's a successful day. Um, so it was just going back to that and really, really enjoying it. So then what was the ultimate factor or factors that put Boston in particular back on your schedule, as opposed to I mean, frankly, let's be honest, you could run, you could run any race you wanted. So why Boston again? Honestly, it was just that it was already on my schedule quite early. And um, John Hancock has always been really, really good to me. And they worked with Josh very early, um, very early on. And we're like, we want, you know, we want Des back. She was fourth. I mean, she's always really reliable. And I, mean, I don't know how the conversations went, but uh it probably was planted on my schedule while I was taking time off, you know, and um, I didn't really even know it. But when it came around, it was like, no, this is the right thing. And conversations with Josh when I was like, I, I 
do want to get going again. I do want some races. And he's like, well, here's this really good opportunity. And you're like, yeah, that is really good. I'll, I'll go there because it's, again, it's a marathon that if I was going to do, it was always fun. And, um, them extending that offer and like that invitation, uh, when I was kind of having a crisis of confidence and self-belief, um, it was them, you know, reaching out and saying, we still believe in you. Yeah. Fourth is really good. And it still means you have a shot. Your career's not done. It was all these things wrapped into really just an invitation and, and maybe it wasn't how they perceived it, but when it came to me with the timing and, you know, the whole thing, it was like, okay, they still believe in me. So let's give it one more go. And we should say that the Josh that you're referring to is Josh Cox, your agent. And that might not mean anything to anybody by saying your <laughs> agent. But if you saw the end of this race, uh, Josh was the guy who, as I saw on Twitter, every single person who mentioned it was like, oh, the Josh Cox ugly cry gets me every time. <laughs> that was like, that was the tweet. I th- If I read it once, I read it a hundred times. Josh, you're listening to this. No disrespect, but I swear I saw that tweet maybe, again, like 5,000 times on that day. <laughs> it's so great. Okay, so heading into the race. Now we're going to get race day mode now. You're going to, you're heading into the race. How did you feel from a confidence perspective going into the race compared to previous years? Well, I regrouped well from that time off and, you know, things kind of started coming together. Um, just ran those off distances all the way through the winter. And then it was like, okay, marathon training is where, you know, I really thrive. Uh, but I knew that long break was going to impact this buildup. And so, um, that was kind of always in the back of my mind and it went well, like well enough. And honestly, by the end of it, I was like, well, I look pretty close to where I was last year, which, you know, wasn't bad. It was fourth. I didn't think I was quite there, but I was flirting with that type of fitness. And, um, yeah, so I thought it was going to be like a, a stepping stone year. Like, okay, I took this break. This is going to be the first step back and we're going to build from here and, and see where we can go. So um, I was excited. I was just, I guess, maybe a little more cautiously optimistic, not just like the year before where it was, I'm going, I'm going to try and win. It was like, we're, we're going to find out where I'm at right now. And were you aware or were you made aware of where you potentially, you know, might fare compared to some of your competition or were you keeping track of some of the other notable runners in the field? Um, honestly, not too much. I mean, obviously the field was fantastic, but they, they always do a great job with that. And, uh, the American side was incredible. So that was a huge component, which was just exciting. Um, but I don't really follow the results too closely in a buildup because I don't think they're really all that meaningful. Like a 10 K or a half marathon is, um, tells you more what you could go do on the track than what you're going to go do in Boston. And has that always been the case or is that just the case now that, I mean, frankly, when you're really fit, you're right near the front. So you might not even need to be completely aware of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, you can keep an eye on it, but none of it really matters. It's, uh, you know, what happens on race day. No one, nobody cares about your training log um, unless you punch it into a result. All right. So, you might not have been completely aware of the people you were racing against. When did you become aware of the weather or potential weather? I mean, there was definitely chatter about it uh, 
press conference, which is always on Friday. Um, and then Brooks did their own press conference on Saturday. And that was when I was, you know, it was, it can change so quickly in Boston that you just don't give it a second thought until you're a day or two out. And that conversation was still really similar. Like, how are you approaching this? Um, what's your advice? And I was like, I should probably check this out. Maybe I need some gloves. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in Boston on that Saturday because I live in Rhode Island. So we did a, like a little meetup on Saturday in downtown Boston, right near the finish line. And it was cold, man. Like it was some like light snow was coming down. Like it wasn't like accumulating, but it was like a flake here, a flake there. It was really cold. And I remember, you know, at that point being like, man, I'm glad I'm not running tomorrow to say nothing of someone like yourself. So when did you end up making the decision on what to wear and what exactly was that? And like, I guess, how do you how do you gauge that from a, a race day perspective compared to like a workout? Where like, obviously, if you're in a workout, like you can shed gear, you can stop at some point. What's it like determining what you're going to wear on race day when the weather is so iffy? Yeah, um, totally honest. It, it was a lot of luck. Like they have you put your bag together um, the night before for – if you were to win, this is the stuff you're going to wear on the podium. Um, and so, you know, you throw a jacket in, some pants, whatever it may be. And I I picked one jacket, which was a little bit thicker and heavier. And I was like, this will, whatever, this is fine. They're all the same. They all have the branding. Um, and then, you know, the black jacket with the yellow stripe across it. Um, I was like, I'll take this one to the start. And I never thought I was going to be wearing a jacket in the race. So then you pack arm warmers, gloves, hat, you know, and, and double everything, double socks, just so you can warm up and then have dry stuff to start. Um, so that was all in there. Uh, but one jacket. And then when I got out there, <laughs> we were talking about this the other day, I, I actually sent a text to Ryan. I was like, do you think it's weird to start in a jacket? Like, is that going to look dumb he's like no just who cares it's you can throw it off it's gonna start slow because it's so bad out there and i'm like all right i'll, I'll just start with it um and i was kind of relieved to see everyone else have so much gear on because it was so untraditional but it was all like last minute and a little bit of luck um but on the flip side training in michigan it's like okay i kind of know what to wear right here and if it's going to go out slow it's essentially a training run for the first few miles and then you can build into it from there and strip stuff off and, and get going if you need to. Yeah, that's a good point. So did you end up wearing underneath the jacket what you expected to? Or did you get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm probably going to wear the jacket the whole time. So maybe I need to take the arm warmers off or whatever. No, I, I had the arm warmers on underneath and the gloves. Um, initially, I was like, well, I'll just wear a long sleeve t-shirt and like cut a hole in for the bib. Um, but just it, a long sleeve in the rain is just something to cling to you. So the jacket seemed a little more practical. All right. Last piece that we didn't talk about for gear was the all black shoes. Cause back then it was like, Oh, what are these shoes? Right. There was like all this, like, all right, what, what kind of shoes is she wearing? And there's even some talk after the fact, can you say now exactly what, what shoes you were wearing during the race? Those were the, the Hyperion elite and they just came out and um, they were a really early addition. Uh, I talked to, uh, before the trials, Nikhil and I did a podcast with Mario, um, about this whole setup, but they, they flew out to Traverse city, Michigan 
and dropped off a pair, I think on Wednesday before I flew out to Boston. So that's when I got that pair of shoes and had never been in, you know, that Brooks version. So, you know, Marathon 101, nothing new on race day. They're like, here's the, here are these shoes. We think they're awesome, but they've never covered 26.2 miles. Um, you've never even worn them before. So that's what I had. And I did a couple strides in them and they're super stiff at first. And then, you know, kept striding out and it was like, these are actually breaking in kind of like nicely. And the guy's like, well, we painted them. There's black paint. So maybe that's like loosening up on them. There's all these things that just could have gone completely wrong. Um, so I had those and my traditional flats that I'd done all my training in at the start. And same thing. It was like, I still didn't know what I was going to wear. And I was like, you know what? If these shoes ruin my day, who's even going to know because the weather's so bad? Like, I don't think this is going to be the problem. Like, I'm just going to try them out. <laughs> but that's the first time those went 26.2 miles. It's funny. And if they had ruined your day, you, can you imagine the deal that Brooks would give you after that? It'd be like, don't say anything. <laughs> we'll like double your contract. Don't say anything about the shoes. No, they. I mean, honestly, I've never had a pair of shoes from Brooks that I've uh, pulled out of the box, put on and been like, mm, these feel awful. So there was a lot of confidence <laughs> there. And um, yeah, I mean, they would have been like, nah, it's probably the weather. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, or the paint. Yeah, you, know, you can never, you can never right. judge the issue by by the by the kind of paint that's on there. All right, so the race starts, which was like, I think the most hysterical getup that I saw. Rewatching this was the a woman all the way to the left, as if like as if you're running the race. An elite. It was actually running with the full poncho on, like the translucent <laughs> poncho, and it was like billowing out the back. I was like, oh my goodness, like I can't even believe it. It was. Were you aware of that at the time? Because in and watching it in real time. On Marathon Monday, just a couple of days ago, I was like, I can't even believe that that's like one of the best runners in the world. And they're literally wearing a poncho to start the marathon. There was some wild stuff. I did. I did see that. And then um, a lot of the athletes had like just like the latex gloves over their regular gloves. Like, I don't know. There was some bizarre stuff. I, mean, I guess a lot of people. If you're not from Michigan or the East Coast or, you know, the Midwest or something like that, it's like, why would you ever understand how to dress in this <laughs> right all right so when you so you're watching this race just as i am you see the start and like the commenters are immediately like immediately are like oh my goodness like they are going out slow and obviously everyone looks slower on tv than they do in real life were you surprised by how it looked watching it for the first time <laughs> yeah that's always interesting um it does look pretty pedestrian and you're like I could do that. I could see how people could, you know, think that, you know, well, I could run in that group. They're not going that fast. And you have the occasional reporter who's like, well, I'll run next to them and get an interview. Um, and that seems like a logical idea. And then you see it in real life and you're like, no. <laughs> so it was a little surprising. Yeah, it's always it always depends on which camera angle you they use, right? Because if they use the camera angle from either the front or the back, you just can't tell. But occasionally they'll go to like the motorbike next to you. You'll see people striding out, and it looks like they're going four times faster than they were from the straight-on <laughs> angle. Absolutely. It's it's actually quite entertaining. All right. So the race starts. Everyone, again, even for, you know, truth be told, you know, everyone did start out pretty slow. I mean, the, the first, the 5K was, was 1917, and it wasn't as if that was even even paced. Like, the first mile was definitely the slowest, uh, even within that. And then uh, Murga goes out at the half-mile mark. 
um, from there. When you're early in a race like this, and specifically in this race, are you? Do you even you know stay aware of of little things like that, or are you just like, all right, man, this is a 26 mile race. Like, I'm just not going to be bothered by little one off moves like that. Yeah, I found it interesting. I was, you know, logically, you're just like, it's way too early to be doing that. And this pace is slow, but look what we're headed into for, there's going to be no relief for 26.2 miles. We're just going straight into this. So um, what's, what's the hurry? <laughs> and it was funny because, and there's no way of, of, of the men's race, I, there's no way that Yuki knew that that had happened in the women's race, but literally the exact same thing happened in the men's race. We're not going to, you know, look at the men's race this whole time. We're going to talk about the women's race, but I thought it was funny how like it was pretty symmetrical in terms of how the start was for both men and the women. Yeah, not totally surprising, but um, I loved what Yuki did. I thought it was just so smart. And he's like, well, you know, they say if you go out too hard in Boston, you, you fade and you pay for it later. So I'm going to take everyone out too hard in Boston. And then he's just out there by himself. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and to the point where they were actually not even showing him, they were showing like the pack trailing him as if they were the leaders, which was always kind of funny. Like, oh, yeah, here are the men's leaders. Oh, no, not, not really. There's, this is actually second Kinda, place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, she breaks out and then she's caught fairly quickly. You come through the first 5K at 1917. Were you aware of the pace or are you, or are you just looking at the people near you and judging your own pace? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really ever check my watch. It was like, you just, I just need to be in the pack. Whatever the pack does, you're kind of at the mercy of them because of the conditions. Um, I was definitely pretty aware that I felt really bad from the gun. And even that pace it was like, I'm not sure this is sustainable today. <laughs> and then the 10K was significantly faster. So the 10K split was 1751. At that point, did you feel like you guys were going at a pace that was fairly hard or did it still feel like, you know, again, this is all based on like the conditions, obviously, or did it feel like people were still kind of holding back a little bit? Yeah. And uh, for me personally, I guess when I say that didn't feel sustainable, it was almost over that uh, 5K to 10K where I was like, this has gotten a little bit quicker and I'm not sure I can do this the rest of the way in. Uh, so that's how I was feeling about it. But you could tell the group was so big and, you know, people are you know, chopping on their feet and their strides and stuff because it was actually not that difficult. It's just when you extend it over that long of a time frame, it does start seeing, seeming a little bit, a little bit much like this is going to wear on us in a different way. Yeah. And right, right around there, right after you guys passed through the 10K, got to around the 15K mark, something happened in the men's race that I wanted to ask you about because they didn't, never showed anything like this happening in the women's race, but it was also wasn't the focus of the TV coverage was they showed Galen Rupp dropping a bottle at one of the tables. Did you ever have that issue or did you, or did you see other people having that issue with just the slickness uh, due from the rain and, and you know, having wet gloves and that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely a bit more problematic. And um, I didn't, I missed one because I just didn't see where my bottle was. Um, I wasn't paying attention when we ran by it. But then after that, like I would grab them and my hands were so cold, like they're the squeeze bottles. And it was hard to squeeze the drink into your mouth because like my hand was just so numb. Um, so on some of them, it was like squeeze what you can, I guess, like try to unscrew the top and drink it that way because 
was, it was actually very hard to hold on to them. And then there were also times where obviously you could just pass, you know, through the volunteers who were just holding cups of water. Did you ever just go that option just because you wouldn't have to squeeze anything out? Uh, I did on the first 5K because I missed that bottle and um, seemed like a good idea. But you're going to you splash so much on your hand and you think you're cold and then you get this like extra water all over Gatorade all over your hand. I'm like, this is a horrible idea. And like, none of it gets in your mouth. I'm like, I'll just try to squeeze the bottles. <laughs> Quick learning experience. And so right before the hour mark, they, they start talking about you again. Um, and this was, yeah, it was right around the one hour mark. And it was funny at this point in the broadcast, you were mentioned pre-race and you were mentioned a couple times around that point. And it seems like they're, they're using the same adjectives that we often hear when you're at these races, which are, I'd love to hear your impressions of this, watching it, uh, this, you know, for the first time. And they call you like, all right, Des Linden is a, you know, a blue collar runner. She's super tough. She's a fighter. What is your initial reaction when you hear those descriptions? And I'll, I'll just couch it by saying, when I hear that, I never hear like Des Linden is super talented, right? You never hear like <laughs> those words. It's always like, she's like, punching above her weight, right? Or like these kinds of like imagery that, that oftentimes are being used. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I agree with that. I think it's like not that talented, but she's a grinder. Um, you know, she's gritty and, and it's great. I mean, it's like kind of backhanded compliment in a way, but I don't know. I actually kind of take pride in that. And I think my resume lacks track credentials so you see the sexy times on the track and you're like, oh, upside in the marathon is huge. You're going to be great. Um, but I started in the marathon in every now and then I would kind of dip onto the track. And, and so it, it's just a little bit uh, backwards. But um, I guess for that reason, they say I'm gritty. <laughs> and I don't know. I have some track talent. I just never really touched on it all that much. It's just hysterical. Right? You, you said you use the phrase backhand the compliment. I think that's a nice way of saying it. Um, yeah, because like, you know, multiple time Olympian, you know, someone who's run unbelievably well in so many races. And it's always like this. They, they kind of portray you as this uh, underdog in some sense. And when do you feel like that took hold? Um, I mean, I think that's just where I started. And, you know, again, like even in college, I didn't do all that much. Uh, I think it was a little bit of lack of dedication, but once I decided, okay, I'm going to do this sport for real, um, I excelled pretty quickly, which must be some type of talent there to, to be able to do that. Uh, but just that history is a little bit, uh, short in, in stuff that might indicate you could have potential. Um, so you only have the one event to be like, okay, well, she's, She's this good. We don't know how good she's going to get because her track times are just not informative, I suppose. Which is so funny because it never you, – you almost never see it go in that direction, right? You see that build up, but it's safe to assume that it would go back the other way. It's like, well, it's just, we've seen so many track athletes go up to the marathon and not quite work out the way they had hoped or you know, maybe their fans had hoped. And yet you almost never see it the other way of like, yeah, she's great at the marathon. You know, but there's no way she can run a 5K. It's like, ah, I think, I think she can handle it okay. Um, all right. So right after that, 
which was kind of, you know, it basically, obviously there was no way of the broadcasters to know what was to come, but they basically describe you this way. And then a minute later is, you know, one of like the, the hallmark things that happened in this race that everyone will always remember who watched it. And that's the epic, the, 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 the porta potty run, right? The Shalane <laughs> does porta potty run, um, at, you know, 112. What was the conversation like between you and Shalane, um, prior to that event? Yeah, in the the early miles, I was, you know, didn't feel like my legs were kind of come around at all that day. And so I found her in the pack and I was like, I think I'm probably going to drop out today. I don't, this is going to be miserable. Um, and she was super concerned. She like kind of grabbed my shoulder and she's like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Are you hurt? And I'm like, no, no, I just like, kind of feel flat. But if you need anything, like, let me know. Um, you know, and I didn't really elaborate on that, but it was kind of like, if you need someone to pace you or you, you know, want someone to run next to you or whatever. Um, so that was just on the table early on and it wasn't something she asked for or anything like that. But, you know, later down the road, she kind of found me in the group and was like, I'm my having like stomach distress and there was porta potties up ahead. She's like, do you think I should go? Um, and it was just a, like kind of thinking out loud from her, her end. And I was like, you know, it's, it's slow enough. You can get back in pretty quickly. It was like, I'll try to go to the front and slow it down. Um, if not, I'll, you know, reconnect with you or whatever. Um, but usually in those situations, like if you have stomach distress, it's not going to get better as you go throughout the race if you don't like solve it. So it was slow enough. I'm like, just, yeah, just go. So that was kind of the the really quick conversation. Yes, yeah, stomach distress is not something that favors the procrastinator. <laughs> well put. So, all right. So, I guess before we dive into what happened next, is she somebody that you've had that kind of in race candor before, or is that something that's you know just fair that's that's pretty commonly done amongst people who know each other in races of this distance? Um, I feel like. Because we had raced so much and coming off the Olympics and, um, I don't know, just maybe the nature of the day, it was like, I'm going to, I felt like she was a teammate from a couple of games and we both really wanted the same thing on the day for an American to win. Uh, of course she was fresh off the New York win too. So it was like, it was her, I felt like it was her day. Um, but it wasn't something that, you know, we had had in the past. It was just maybe a thing that had been building over teams and then you throw in the conditions like, yeah, we should probably work together if possible. And a big thing on the broadcast was talking about how that she was from that area. And certainly she sounds as if she trains in Boston area, but that she was from Marblehead mass, which is fairly close to Boston. Um, so was that something that you were aware of in terms of, you know, this being a hometown race, so to speak for her? Yeah, I mean, I she's never been shy about how much it means to her, and you know how passionate she was about um, wanting to win there, and you know that's something we lined up against each other all the time in Boston. So I'm certainly aware of it. And again, fresh off that New York win, and you're like, man, imagine going back to back and bringing this home for the U.S. again. Like she's definitely our person to do it. So it's kind of in my mind. All right. So what was it like? She comes flying out of the porta potty. At that point, you'd backed off and you it's not as if you were like walking along the road, but you had backed off a little bit. And it looked like someone was actually with you when she comes 
you know, flying out of the porta potty. What was that moment like? It was really strange because initially I'm like, well, I'll just go to the front and slow it down. Like that'll be easy. No one wants to lead right now. Um, but everyone's our takeoff. So they're just like, this is our moment. Like, let's go. And I kind of hemmed and hawed. I'm like, well, I told her I'd slow it down. I didn't, I don't really want to wait. Like, but you're like the biggest jerk of all time if you say you would and then you don't. Um, and so, so I kind of like, it was sort of like, well, I'll just sort of hang out in the middle here. She can catch me and then we can catch the group together. Um, and again, like logically, just because Shalane has to go to the bathroom doesn't mean it's the right time to head into these horrible conditions for another 13.1 miles at a specific space, like pace, you know, um, tactic wise, that's not a good decision. Well, Shalane's going to the bathroom. So now's when I make my move. Like I still got a long way to Boston. So I, I felt pretty comfortable just kind of cutting the difference and, um, working together to get back to the group. But yeah, uh, Serena Burlo was back there at that point and she like ran to one of the tables and took like the uh, lining off the table or it was a trash can nearby it and like punched a hole in the top and made this poncho. But she was in the process of doing that while Shalane's catching up. And so you can kind of see this like, I don't know what it looks. I mean, it looks insane in the moment and on TV, you just see this thing like billowing in the wind and she's like making an outfit. Um, and it's like, man, this race is a circus. <laughs> That's, that is the wildest thing I've ever heard. So she's literally like, Doing like like a home improvement project, <laughs> like while she's running the marathon, ripping things off tables. You're sitting there like I'm not even sure what I'm doing. Shalene's probably completely gassed up with like adrenaline. Like I got to get back into this race. You're like at that point had almost had like one foot out the door of whether you were even going to continue. So at that point, were you just thinking like, all right, I'm gonna get her back to the pack and like you know, adios for me at this point. Totally. Yeah, I'm like, job done, check. Like, I can go get brunch. <laughs> so what changed? Um, So we catch back up and I actually start feeling res like I respectable. Like, I think I gapped her like just a little bit. Like, I looked back and I'm like, oh, I've, I'm putting a gap on her I'm, and I'm supposed to be helping her get back to the group. Um, So I – we – Slow down. I slowed down a little bit. We kind of worked our way back up. Um, and then I, we reconnected and I was like, well, I'm probably pretty good for the day. Um, and the group was kind of stretching out in front of me. And, and Molly Huddle was, uh, I guess at that point, Daska had gone off the front and Molly Huddle was leading that um, chase pack. And she was running right into the wind. And I was just looking up and I'm like, she's not she's in the worst spot. Like if she gets them to Dosca, she's going to be fried. So I'm just going to try to regroup for a little bit here, get in front of Molly and do that. Like I'm just going to try to get them as close as I can to Dosca. And then we'll have Molly in the group and Shalane in the group. And like, I'll just be the sacrificial lamb here and, and they can take the free ride up and, and then try and win. Yeah. Because you get, you get Shalane back at 120. Mm-hmm. I say Shalane back because that was the plan. But you guys, you guys both get back at 120. At 121 on the clock, Daska gaps the field. And then immediately the broadcasters come up with, 
uh-oh, Lyndon is in trouble. She's falling off the group. <laughs> and, like, at first you couldn't see it on the broadcast. And you peek back, and you're like, you know, that was kind of like the beauty of that that big yellow stripe on your jacket. Like, you're pretty easy to spot throughout the weather. Um, it was true. You, you, you were falling off, and Daska just keeps it going. Like, for the next half mile, she is just putting it to the rest of the field. And then the announcers, you know, say you know that she's been itching to do this all race. Would you agree with that statement? Did it feel like she was like you know that she was itching to do that exact that exact move? She did seem like an aggressor, like she was, you know, kind of on the front, getting a little bit antsy. Um, and you know, she, as soon as Shalane went to the the bathroom, it was like she was the first one to go. And uh, yeah, I think that she just was a little irritated with the pace and thought I can handle this from here on in. All right. At one thirty, so basically nine minutes after Daska leaves, you know, takes off from the group, 10 minutes after you'd rejoin the group, you come back again. So you re you rejoin the chase back at that point. They now announce you know, this is six minutes after they announce that you're in trouble. Oh no. <laughs> it's that is Des is back from the dead. Is that how you felt? Did you feel like you had had this, you know, complete resurgence or was it far more tactical and evolutionary? It was pretty tactical and it was still like just very short term thinking. Like I'm just going to get to the group and then help the people on the front for as long as I can. Not like uh, putting myself back in here and um, I think I've got a shot. It was still very short term. Like, how can I help these other people in the pack? So do you, when you get to the front and you take that leadership role within the pack, again, at this point, like you mentioned, you're still kind of the sacrificial lamb here in terms of your own thinking. You talked about your conversation before with Shalane. Do you say anything to the rest of the group or is it just, do they just understand what you're up to when you head to the front and start pressing the gas a little bit? Yeah, I didn't say anything. It was very much like we got this gap is getting too big. We have to go and and here's the ticket. Like jump on board um because no one was really willing to push the way we needed to to chase Daska because it was a big task into the weather. Um and it was like I it was almost like everyone was like, "Okay, well we're not going to win, so do we start battling for second place here and positioning for that. I was like, no, let's, I'm going to go to the front and we're going to try and get this thing back together. So were you aware of the group behind you and around you as you were doing that? Or were you singularly focused on closing the gap? Um, I was pretty eyes up and let's just close this gap. So looking up at Daska uh, and yeah, I mean, the intention was like, Hopefully Molly tucked in right behind me. Hopefully Shalane's right there. Um, I don't really care about anybody else, you know, at that point. And yeah, I looked back and it was completely strung out and it was not what I expected at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I asked, because this is a couple of times they went to the, the side view during the broadcast and you're killing it. And they're like, oh my gosh, she's got the spring is back. And like they're pumping you up. You're making moves. And then at that, at the, at, was it the 150 mark, you kind of started to like partner with Chasir at all, uh, a little bit there. And then at the 30K mark, 152.32, you're 25 seconds back. At what point did you shift mentally from, 
I'm the sacrificial lamb who's helping others to, I'm in this to chase her down for myself. Yeah, I think Edna Kiplagat went by me at one point. Um, and it was before the fire station. And I was like, this is super weird. Like, I'm leading this group. Like, why don't you just tuck in? So I kind of just peeked over my shoulder and the group had just completely blown apart. And I'm like, oh, she's like racing me right now. Like she's chasing down Daska and she's like, let's, let's go. Um, and that's kind of the mentality shift right there. It was like, okay, well, I'm actually feeling pretty good. I've uh, put this group away and kind of exploded this whole thing open. So um, why not just race and see what happens this, you know, this late part? Because obviously – even though you don't feel great, uh, everyone feels bad. So just worry about yourself from this point moving forward. And then the 15, like the, the, not the 15 minutes of the broadcast, but like the, the, the in real time, 15 minutes from one fifty two or so to around two ten, there's not a huge focus on the women's race. And all of a sudden, Dask is getting passed at 210, like coming out of a commercial. And you're like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> so did did she come back to you quickly? Or what what was it like catching up to her with you and Chasir and Edna Kiplikas right behind you two? What was it like catching her in terms of the pace with which um, you guys closed the gap or she came back to you? It was through the whole Newton Hills. And I'm like, now nah, there's no way we're going to catch her. Um, I'm just going to kind of shadow Cheshire and that's, you know, the podium would be amazing today. Um, but she just seemed too far away. And then just here kind of gapped me as well. So it was like, just hang tough. Like this is a great spot to be in. Um, but you always have your eyes up and I'm super, I mean, I know the course really well. So I'm running the tangents and I'm seeing like these gaps close a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker as we get to the end of the Newton Hills. And then, um, I mean, Tosca was just on the wrong side of the road all the time, all of a sudden. And it was like, she's she's in a world of hurt. This is going to come back. But that was late in the hills. So what was the visibility like compared to previous years in terms of just being able to track her? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little bit easier. Instead of looking for the individual, it's just like the pile of press trucks, you know? So it's like, where are the clocks? Where are the trucks? Um, you eye up those vehicles and and it's like, that's where I need to get. Okay. And were you able to gauge how well Shasir was feeling during this period? She seemed, um, it was a lot like Edna where, you know, she really just wanted to race me. Like I was in front of her, you know, pushing into the wind and she went by me. I'm like, okay, that's whatever. And then she kind of slowed down a little bit and like, we're not going to catch her at this pace. So I would go by her and then she passed me right back. And it was, it was obvious that she wanted to be um, in control of the racing. And so I knew she was already pretty much um, stretching herself all the way out at that point. Like, otherwise, just tuck in and, and take the um, pacer up to the, you know, the leader. And so she, she wanted to be an aggressor. And so um, I, I thought she felt good. And uh, if I could keep her in sight in my sights, it would, I would be in a good spot. Okay. So two ten, she passes Daska and you're right behind her. I maybe 20, 30 meters or so. And then you pass Daska as well. A couple seconds later, what's the thought process at that point for you, 
now that not only has the part, the field behind you completely blown up, as you put it, but Daska, at this point, there's no way you feel like she's a contender. What What's your thinking here in terms of not only your potential to win this race, but how strategically you want to achieve that goal? Yeah, I think at first I was like, cool, I'm going to get second place today. This is like, if I hold it together, <laughs> I can get second place. Um and then I like kicked myself in the butt. I was like, race, like keep racing. And it was a really similar spot to 2011 where the real racing started happening. And um, it just to me, it was like, oh, I'm going to get a second chance to try and, and get this win. Like this doesn't happen to anybody, um, you know, stay focused, engaged and, and race. And, you know, I knew Cheshire was kind of testing me earlier in the Newton Hills and, you know, she wanted to be the aggressor. And so, uh, when I closed that gap up and I was like, I'm just going to pass her like in a commanding and like, you know, confident way and just see how she responds because if she had the legs, in my opinion, she would have passed me right back um, if she could. And so when she didn't respond right away, like when she didn't go right by me, you know, in the next like few minutes, I was like, okay, well, I think I can break her over the next couple of miles. Um, and I knew that I had like stretched out this pack but I also knew I wasn't running all that fast. So in the back of my mind, it was like, this is all going to fall apart. And uh, you're probably going to go to, from first to seventh in, in the next couple of miles. But keep your foot on the gas just in case. <laughs> and one thing that is you can never tell during these races, and in part because especially back then, they just didn't have some of the technology in terms of how fast people were running in real time is you never know if someone's being caught or if they're fading or both. So when you passed her at 212, and you, as you mentioned, like you really surged hard and that's definitely what every runner is taught. Like, Hey, when you pass somebody, pass them with authority, you know, to really set the, really set the momentum and set the stage. When that happened, did you feel like that was, that was a product of you stepping on the gas or was she coming back to you a little bit? I thought I stepped on the gas. It was like, it's downhill from here. Um, let's just take a test and, and see, you know, how she responds to this. So um, it was definitely, to me, it felt like it was a decision that I made, but maybe it was a little bit of both. And when you passed her, that was actually within the elite bottle station tables as well. And, and she went to the tables, in fact, and it didn't look like you did. I skipped a ton of bottles that day, <laughs> which again was like, I'm like, oh, this is all going to go horribly wrong in these late miles because of that. Um, but I, I also remember skipping that one in 11. I'm like, eh, it didn't cost me anything. Maybe a second or two. Not <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because you just kept flying through. And then she went to the bottles, which they didn't, I don't know if they commented on that in real time, but it was like, wow, like this is a harbinger of things to come because there's no way. If you're her, especially considering the aggressiveness that she showed just a mile earlier, that she'd be going to the bottles if she felt like she was going to be coming back and counterpunching you. Right, right. So at that point, again, there wasn't a whole lot of drama from that point forward, the last last 30 minutes or so. You're someone who's well known to the crowd. You know, not only are you an American, but you've had so much you know success there over a long period of time. 
when you were running past the people and, and, you know, obviously they were cheering hard for you. Can you hear it on the broadcast? Were you getting like information about where she was behind you or was it just all positive affirmation type cheering? It was just, you know, positive cheering the USA, USA. Um, a lot of people knew who I was. So it's a lot of go Des, but not a lot of feedback on what was going on behind me. And, um, I was definitely running scared. Like I didn't, I wasn't going to look back and I knew I was slowing, but, um, you know, I, I felt like I was like preparing myself to respond if someone went by. In retrospect, this is a great comparison because you and Karui were in similar positions in the last few miles <laughs> and, you know, way out in front, huge lead, great pedigree. You know, th- these are, you guys are the class of the field in certain ways. And then, you know, he's looking back constantly. So you said just a second ago that you didn't want to look back. Is that because you didn't want to give people confidence behind you? Or were you feel like once you start doing that, it sets up some sort of like negative domino effect within yourself? Uh, it was more confidence to the people behind me. I mean, I felt in control and like I was moving forward well enough. Um, but I also knew that the pace wasn't like lightning fast. You know, I didn't really know what's the appropriate pace in these conditions for this part of the race. Um, but I, I felt like I had fight in my legs. Like, okay, if someone comes up, um, you try and attach to them and see if you can go. So at what point in the last few miles did you feel like you would put yourself in a position to really step on the gas all the way without fear of blowing up before the finish? <laughs> um, I was afraid the whole time to be, to be perfectly honest. I, I mean, I guess I really um, prepared myself to turn on to Boylston. And when I got into Boylston, I, you know, I was like, no one's passed me yet. And I, my legs feel good enough. And I've run this stretch before and I've got it wrong before. And I think I have enough today. I feel strong enough to, uh, you know, fight for that win down Boylston if I need to. So it was around there. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention when you passed, when you passed Shazir, as soon as you make the pass and you, it looks like, all right, she's not going to immediately respond at that point on the broadcast. And I know you're watching it. They immediately cut to 2011 finish at that point. (laughs) And as a Boston Red Sox fan, you know, my whole life, it's like every time before, you know, early 2000s, when we had any success, they would show like the Bill Buckner between the legs play in the World Series in 1986. <laughs> it felt like that moment like must have been like your feeling in retrospect, like watching this because like, come on, man, you're going to show that. Like, I just made this huge move. You're going to show me 2011. Right. Like, let's just put that in the past. And that moment's gone from now on. <laughs> <laughs> when you saw that watching it, what was your initial reaction? Um, I mean, I loved like just the, the, the idea that those races kind of played out in those late parts really similarly. I liked that. And, um, you know, there's kind of the overcoming moment as well. That's pretty cool. Uh, I hadn't thought about it negatively at all, but I actually, that's actually pretty funny. It also seems like a great way to jinx someone like, don't show that. (laughs) Yeah, it's exactly like the broadcaster during a basketball game being like, all right, this guy's made 11 free throws in a row. And you're like, all right, (laughs) let's go miss this one. 
Right. Forget it. <laughs> All right. So you're watching this and you've just mentioned like basically once you got you know onto Boylston, that's when you knew. That's also on the broadcast when they're cutting to Ryan at the finish line, he's not holding it together at all. <laughs> when you're watching this um, on Monday, what was it like? What was it like for you seeing him during your during your race? Concerning what you described earlier uh, regarding how he was supporting you during the summer post 2017. Yeah, I mean. I had seen the photos before and everything, but just like the smile on his face is so incredible. And um, it just speaks to how much he believes in me. There's a really great um, line in Andre Agassi book. I believe that's where it's at, but it's like, you know, everything about a person when you see their face at the moment of your greatest triumphs. And um, I just think that quote really sums up Ryan. Well, like he's just, super proud of me and it feels like our thing. And and I know that was just as big for him as it was for me. So this was one of the most unique world marathon majors of all time, all <laughs> things considered. Do you feel like that makes it like, would you, if you, if you could have a choice, right. You know, 2017, 2011, 2018, in retrospect, so if you could win any of those, but only one, which one would have you chosen? I, I loved this one. I think it was perfect for me. And um, we poked fun of the gritty and the tough and all of that. But that's like what the marathon's all about. And that's kind of why I, I love the event. You sign up for this really difficult thing. Um, and we're in this era of marathoning where we're trying to make it easier and take out the challenges. And it's like, you know, can we get a course any flatter? Can we get people to block more wind? Can we get laser lines so you don't have to think about the pace? Uh, let's get shoes that make the you more efficient so your legs hurt less at the end. Um, you know, it's just to me, I look at it, it's like we're in like it's the era of the wussification of marathoning. Um, in in Boston was like, hey man, we're 123 years of badass history and like let's throw a freaking curveball at this thing and this is what the marathon's all about and so um i love the challenge of it and i like that i won on that day god that is so well said and then <laughs> shortly after you win the men come charging down the road really right after you so i can only imagine what it must have been like for the people watching at miles 24 25 and 26 to like see all of this happen in real time so close to each other Again, you mentioned before, like, you don't get to watch the men's races, you know, in retrospect, because, you know, you obviously are ingrained in your own race. What was it like for you knowing who won that race, but then watching it after the fact in terms of how it actually happened? Oh, it was unreal. I mean, I remember standing there, you know, at the finish and be like, oh, my God, it's Yuki. Like, this is amazing. Like, of course, it's him. He's freaking baller. Um, but seeing it play out was pretty incredible. And, um, I talked about it ahead of time, feeling like those conditions made it a 30 mile race, really. Um, like the feels like is, was 30 miles. And if you took the results at 22 and go, okay, this is where the finish line of the marathon was, um, they would make a ton of sense. But, you know, if you got to that point and say that was the traditional finish line and they're like, oh, today you're actually going 30, um, the results would be 
drastically different. Like no one wants to finish a marathon and then find out they have, you know, several more miles to go. And I feel like Yuki was probably the most prepared for that type of distance. So it's not super surprising, but watching it uh, kind of just unfold sort of makes me buy into my theory even more. Like, yeah, Karu would have won um, if it ran like a 26.2, but it ran like a 30 miler. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was so funny listening to the broadcasters because they were so focused on you after you won. They like had lost track of the men's race. And they're like, all right, Karui is <laughs> going to be coming. Oh, hold on a second. Who is this? <laughs> and it was like they were completely taken off guard by who was actually winning the men's race. And it was like, how often is that going to happen in World Marathon Major history? Totally. Yeah, it was incredible. And even just like trying to pick out the bodies. Like, is that like women's like with the hats and the jackets? Like, is that a women's runner? Is that a men's runner? Like, what field are we in? And, you know, you have Karui passing all but the top like two. I mean, Yuki was beat all the women, but me, <laughs> it was just bizarre. So I can't imagine trying to, uh, you know, cover all that. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. It was funny. Cause I was looking at it. Um, I try not to do any research before watching the race. Cause I want to watch it like with fresh eyes and do research afterwards, but I'm watching the race and then you finish and the Karui's still in the lead. I'm like, what's wrong with me? I thought Yuki won this race. Man, I like I have the worst memory ever. And then like I'm like, oh, he did win the race. I had like that moment of like, oh, thank God he won. Because I don't know how I've probably been like misspeaking about this race for two years. Like I've been saying the wrong winner the whole time. Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. I, it was so late in the race. You're like, nope, this one's done. Like you go out for your run, you don't even watch it finish and come home and you're like, What happened? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So after the fact, you had a chance to watch this race again, like we said, for the first time ever. What what struck you in the broadcast that didn't didn't necessarily have a lasting impact when you raced it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think what was really cool was how much attention the women's race got in like the level of excitement for the American women. Um, and, th and then again, like you were saying late where it's like, we're not even showing the men's feed anymore. Uh, we're going to focus on this one single person running in the rain and it's a, it's a, a female and there's not a lot of sports that, you know, women get equal coverage. And then to have a moment like that, you're like, well, that's, that's pretty cool. And it's not like the men laid a goose egg. Like you had Shadrach, um, Iwat come in third on the men's side. So they were certainly right in there. It was just like that moment was a little bit bigger. Absolutely. And what you said about the conditions makes it also more memorable because this is one of those times was that, you know, you talk about 2018 Boston, people will forever be like, oh, wait, which one is that? You're like that was the one in the rain. And it's like, <laughs> yep, I know exactly which one you're talking about. And it's always going to be able to, you know, stick in people's memory for that. And when you look back at that fact of like, hey, you know, th these were these conditions obviously were a hindrance to people, you know, performing at their best, right? Like that was probably the worst marathon time you might ever have in your life, right? <laughs> Depending on how long you run marathons for. But it was also maybe one of the highlights of your life. What does that say about taking these experiences and trying to approach even a negative situation in a positive way because you never quite know what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's so much there, and um, yeah, that's kind of the the whole keep showing up thing. 
started before that race. And, you know, that was a lot in that summer of 17, where it was like, you don't have to plan for the next thing. You don't have to look too far down the line. It's just like, show up today and see what you have and, um, you know, get started in go from there and, and break it down into manageable uh, segments and create little successes. And I feel like that's kind of how that race was as well. It was like, once I stopped worrying about how I felt in, you know, gave myself tasks to do and showed up for each one, um, all of a sudden my whole mindset, it changed. And obviously the outcome was way different than I expected, but, um, you know, it's, show up for the next moment, show up for the next task and give yourself a chance. So it was certainly a big learning experience from that race. And the Rambling Runner podcast is predominantly for and about dedicated amateur runners. And obviously we're talking about the Boston Marathon here. The person who won the Boston Marathon, that's, you know, we're not talking about amateur anything right now. However, what you experience on that day can be a teaching moment for so many people. The people who say, all right, I want to run the perfect marathon on the perfect day to get my best possible time. And then that will be the highlight of my career. Almost this formulaic approach to how to succeed in running within their current fitness level. And yet, this is a highlight moment for you that didn't follow any formula. So what would you advise people? You're a coach now. like you, you're, you're coaching amateur runners now as part of something that you're doing with your award. You know, what would you tell someone who's trying to approach their running in that formulaic way, considering what you've learned in your own career? Um, I would say get out of your own way. <laughs> um, I always thought of myself as a 1500 meter runner when I started running. Uh, people were like, are you going to run the 10Ks? Absolutely not. That's too far. Um, and the same thing with the marathon. And then when I realized uh, I didn't have all the answers and that maybe um, other people you know, had a different way I could achieve success. And, um, I stepped out of my own way and opened my mind to different possibilities. Uh, I realized that all of that stuff is just putting boundaries and, uh, limitations on ourselves. It doesn't have to look a certain way, um, to be success and to define success. So, uh, don't put limits on yourself and, and keep an open mind. I think one of the great things about our sport is that, um, we all kind of experience the same thing. It's just at maybe different paces, but, uh, a good tip that I always remind myself is to keep a beginner's mind. And that's just like taking things from a very basic level and being open to the possibility that I like might learn something every single day, um, by listening to, you know, information from everywhere. So I don't have all the answers and, um, I want to keep an open mind and try to figure out new ways and learn new things. So, uh, approaching it like a beginner all the time. That's a great place to end it. Des, thank you for coming on the show. This has been so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Des, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my goodness. This was so much fun. I've been looking forward to this podcast for a while. I think you can see why anyone, anytime I should say you can have someone like Des Linden on your show or just talking to her in any capacity, whether it's a recorded podcast or whatever, you really want to take advantage of it. It is so much fun to do, and I really enjoyed it. That's for sure. Big up to my sponsors, Prevenex and VDOT. 
I use Prevnex every day. I also use VDOT every day as a coach and also as a runner. These are just two great products, two great services, and two great companies that I've been partnering with for a long time. And shoot, I'd be partnering with them even if they weren't sponsoring the podcast. In fact, I did basically that with both of these cases. I've used both of them before they even spent a dollar on the show. So again, if you want to help out the show, check them both out. You will not regret it. Thank you so much for listening, rating, and reviewing the show. It's been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to do more of it during this quarantine time where we're all kind of in suspended animation. So thank you so much, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.